You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 64, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today, I'm going to be speaking with user experience samurai across mindfulness, technology, and design, Jay Vidyarthi. Jay is a frequent speaker and educator on the topic of attention activism and mindfulness. You can find out more about Jay at jayvidyarthi.com. That's J-A-Y-V-I-D-Y-A-R-T-H-I.com. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Jay Vidyarthi to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the upcoming interview with Jay Vidyarthi, you're going to hear him talk about the value of just paying attention to your repetitive habits with technology. And that's what I'm going to suggest for today's tip. It's one of these tips, like many of them on this podcast, that is simple in theory, but can be really challenging in practice to carry out. And that is to pay attention to and see if you can notice those habits of yours in how you use technology that are frustrating to you or challenging or that you'd like to change in some way, but that you keep engaging in anyway. We all have them. It might be too much video watching, social media, messaging, doing things at a time when you don't want, maybe in a way that keeps you awake too long at night, keeps you feeling disconnected from friends or family, whatever it is for you. Now, what so challenging about noticing these things is that when we engage in any of these behaviors, it's often when, and it's often because we're in a mental or physical state of distraction where we're so much less likely to notice what we're doing. Instead, we're just engaging in automatic behaviors. So if you were in a state where you were being more mindful and were able to notice a certain behavior pattern, you might not engage in it in the first place. So let's say you're watching videos one after the other, and I'm suggesting here, well, just notice that you're doing it. Well, if you're doing it automatically, you probably aren't going to notice. So let me give you a few suggestions for how you might be able to deal with that catch-22. One is, and as you'll hear uh, repeated several times in the interview, is to develop a mindfulness practice. Practicing Mindfulness is, of course, a key way in which to develop the capacity to be mindful in your everyday life, such as when you're using technology, so that you will be more likely to notice those repetitive habits of yours. Maybe not immediately, maybe not before you do them, but possibly during them, before you get too entrenched in them, or maybe before too much time has passed afterwards, so you could develop a mindfulness practice. Another way, in addition to that, or if you're not interested at the moment in developing a mindfulness practice, you can set reminders to yourself. May sound a little strange, but you know, you could try setting a reminder for every two hours that pops up and says, huh, what are you doing with your device right now? That could draw your attention to what you're doing. And if at that moment you're on social media and you're on too long, that reminder may enable you to become aware of that habit in a way that you wouldn't have been without that external reminder. You can ask friends or family members to point out to you when you're doing something with technology that they think might be unhealthy or that you might want to change. So you can make use of people around you to be supportive. And then regardless of what you use to trigger your awareness, you might want to write down what you've noticed, because it's easy to forget. And in particular, if you're trying to become aware of patterns, it can be really helpful to write down so that at the end of the day or the end of the week or the end of the month, you can look back. And if you see that there was something you did 50 times during that month or three or four times during a day, then that might help you to say, you know what, that seems like a lot. Uh, Maybe that's a pattern I should start working on. So I hope you find this helpful as a tip or suggestion for some ways in which you can start becoming aware of what your own habits are with technology that you feel like you would like to change or improve. And you'll hear a lot more about that, but about a much, much wider range of topics, particularly relating to design of technology in the upcoming interview with Jay Vidyarthi. 
Hi, Jay, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hey, Robert. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by talking about what you call attention activism. Uh, one, because I've never heard that term before. I, I think I know what you're getting at with it, but of course, we all know that today's technology is constantly trying to and designed to capture our attention as much as possible. So I'd love to hear about what motivated you to start working on on this and what you mean by attention activism. Well, there's sort of a through line in a lot of the effort that people in uh, a wide range of sectors are putting in to resisting the situation you eloquently described, this culture where we're rewarding, I mean, I mean, it's this economy where we're rewarding people who can get the most attention. And so as a result, we're seeing a lot of exploitation. We're seeing manipulative technologies. We're seeing invasive advertising. And of course, the news media and political sphere is full of manufactured outrage and sensationalism. So through innovation, through you know government regulation, there are people working on the ethical side of design, of course, leadership and education and mindfulness, we're seeing a, a whole movement of people who resist this unfair situation. And I describe that as attention activism. I would say an attention activist is someone who's putting effort into empowering individuals to reclaim choice, because that's what this is really about. I mean, in a culture where everyone is competing to influence you, the pursuit of clarity of mind isn't really just about spirituality or well-being anymore. It's, it's an activist stance. It's saying, you know, it's a subversive act to resist the forces of our economy and say, no, I'm going to stake a claim for my own mind space. And I'm going to resist the fact that everywhere I turn, someone is trying to influence my thoughts and behavior in service of their objectives. So that's, that's attention activism. And the reason to highlight it is that there's a number of disparate movements and often they don't communicate with each other. And I think our ability to, of course, we can have our disagreements and approach, but to be able to come together as a large group who care about this issue is important. I would say the clearest example of that is you've got people who are advocating about humane technology to government. And then you've got people, for example, who are teaching mindfulness in schools. And there's not really a sense that these Silicon Valley ethicists and these mindfulness high school teachers are doing the same work, but in some ways, they share a lot of deep values about the impact technology and advertising are having on our minds. Oh, this is great. I mean, there's so many things we can talk about here. You know, reminds me of other movements which have looked for and leveraged these kinds of common values or interests. You know, I think about the environmental movement going back a long way, you know, where people found that what you might call tree-hugging environmentalists, <laughs> people who are looking to, and I say that as one myself, you know, so I, feel, I feel comfortable using that word, but people who are looking to preserve the environment for its own sake, for the health of the planet or of animals. And, you know, hunters, on the other hand, uh, often still to this day join forces because for their own reasons, they want to preserve the environment. Hunters, so there would be wild animals to hunt in natural environments. Mm. But otherwise, you might think of those people as be, having completely opposing interests. And yet, when you step back, you may find that, in fact, they have a lot in common, at least when it comes to pursuing certain types of policy goals. And that's part of what I hear you talking about. Yeah, I think about people who are uh, working on uh, distracted driving or teen depression and suicide distraction in the workplace, video game. I mean, these may all sound like very different issues because they're related to different specific problems in people's lives. But don't they all, as you say, relate to attention? Yeah. I mean, my training is in design. And I think of design almost as a choreography of attention that if you're trying to make, you know, something like an app easy to use, or you're trying to create an in-store experience or you're trying to, you know, design a full sort of service from, you know, like a product or a service from like first principles. In all these cases, like a huge part of what makes the design good is this sense of choreographing people's attention. So they're not overwhelmed. They have the information they need when they need it. It's not frustrating. It's not confusing. In many ways, when you're guiding a mindfulness practice, you're also enacting in this sort of 
choreography of attention where you're, you know, guiding someone to their breath and then opening up to a reflection on gratitude and then perhaps the sound in the environment, coming back to breath, giving people a few techniques they can use when their mind inevitably gets captured by distraction. And so there is this, you know, you'd be hard pressed to argue there isn't some common thread. Now, where I get really activated and the reason why I'm spending so much time trying to articulate the through line here is that these tools aren't always used to bring someone's attention to the breath. For example, an advertisement for a fast food chain that has a mostly naked woman with an unrealistic body crunching down on a you know fat beef burger is also a choreography of attention. It, you cannot ignore it. Your animal instincts forbid you from at least looking at that scene. And therefore, the, this bizarre concept of brand triggers that advertisements pull and then you get into the whole conversation about the attention economy and notifications and dark design patterns. And you realize this attentional choreography and technology in general can be used for good or for evil. And I, you know, I, I hesitate to use those moralistic terms, but if we define them based on your personal values, they can be used in a lot of problematic ways. And so I think that part of what we're looking at in attention activism isn't to just sit here and complain about some hypothetical like tech villain out there or advertising villain. Like, you know, it's not Lex Luthor. These are good people that are trying to make the world a better place in, in most cases. But this, the tools that are being used scale so rapidly that we just can't seem to keep track of the unintended consequences as we start to orient our organizations to these very simple incentives like profit or views we end up breaking a whole bunch of the fabric of society on the way. Well, it's interesting when it was really interesting to hear you use the word choreography. It made me wonder whether you uh, might be using that to refer to something that is more collaborative between the product and the user or the designer and the user than situations that we often deal with on this podcast, where I call it more control of attention than choreography or capture of attention. I don't know if you would draw that distinction or if you would just say, well, there's certain types of choreography which are designed to be more in line with, you know, helping the user promote their own goals rather than trying to subvert them. And I wonder if you could also give us some some examples maybe of both both ways so we can make them more concrete. I mean, I think you've nailed a really important point and I haven't really thought about it in terms of that word choreography, but you're right. If you choreograph a dance, you're, you know, you're showing someone the moves, but ultimately they're engaging with it. And I think that's one of the problems I have with the sort of narrow scope of the, the tech villain idea or the, you know, the idea that all this technology is controlling us because we're slipping into this pattern where a lot of the conversations around humane technology and digital wellness sort of disempowered conversations. They suggest that individuals don't have any agency that we're, we're just lemmings. And like you put the right notification and I just will click on it because I'm just a robot or I'm just completely disempowered or, you know, it's, it's, it's frankly, it's offensive. It's like that I'm, I'm too stupid to decide I don't want to look at these notifications, right? But I think the choreography piece is getting at the individual's role in this, that yes, we absolutely need to advocate for our systems to change. Yes, we need to advocate for ethical design and tech corporations. But we also need a widespread movement on the individual level for people to understand these issues and make better choices. And I think that's where mindfulness can play a huge role in this movement. I, I think about the way our previous generations transform their perspective on cigarettes, because that's an example that sometimes is being used in the context of attention economy. And, and I, I'm not fully aligned with the metaphor, but I think when you think about it in terms of systems change, it's a, quite a fascinating example because You've got the science, you know, showing the health effects of these cigarettes. That's a huge part of it. You've got regulation in the sense as governments deciding, okay, well, there's enough concern here. There's enough health concern that we need to put certain labels on the packages. But you'd be hard pressed to make the claim that a huge part of the transformation wasn't a result of a cultural and social norm change, that there was this shift that was happening in the way people thought about cigarettes and people started thinking about whether it was really polite to light up your cigarette in someone else's home or when you're sitting beside someone on an airplane 
And, you know, this stuff all plays together. And I think that we're missing that piece a little bit in the attention economy and the attention activist movement, which I'm really passionate about, which is, yes, we want to make these systems change, but we also want to empower individuals to, you know, put their phone away at 9 p.m. or to practice mindfulness and train their ability to see advertising for what it is and, and to have that control in that space when their attention is triggered to make a clear choice and decision about how to respond as opposed to instinctively react. So I think that choreography distinction is speaking to this deeper value that I hold that we're not lemmings walking off cliffs, that we have some agency in this. And if we really want to see a change, part of it is educating and even training the attention of individuals to resist the forces that are being pushed upon us by these technologies and advertisements. Yeah, and I wonder if you could, you've mentioned mindfulness as one example of a practice, or we could think of it as a set of techniques that people can use. Of course, we talk about that a lot on the podcast. I wonder if you could either speak to that as an example or to other ways in which you would see attention activism helping individuals to resist or work against the let's not call it control, but maybe influence that technology can have over us that can be hard to resist otherwise. Yeah. So, I mean, we won't belabor the point on mindfulness. It sounds like you've had that conversation a fair bit, but I want to just stress, like there is all the topics we can discuss about mindfulness, how it influences your brain and kind of on an individual level, but then there's also mindfulness in the sense of leadership. So we run a conference once a year in Toronto called A Mindful Society, and I've had the privilege to meet people who are championing mindfulness in the education system or who are bringing mindfulness to social work and to Indigenous communities, who are introducing mindfulness to different contexts in healthcare. So it's not just about practicing mindfulness, but also the advocacy for mindfulness as a evidence-based secular practice in society. Other forms of attention activism lie in innovation. So we have a huge set of examples of technology itself that's being used in service of the attention of activist goals. So everything from tools that limit your use of certain websites like Stay Focused or Freedom. And then you've also got interesting experiments like Ben Grosser has created social media demetricators. So these are browser extensions that just remove all the numbers from social media websites. So if you're using Facebook or Twitter, you use it, you can use it as much as you want, but there's no numbers. You don't see how many likes, you don't see how many retweets. It's all just a completely unquantified experience. I've been using that for a little while now, a couple of years, and it's completely dramatically changed my use of social media and lowered its pull. I want to stop there. I haven't, I haven't heard of it yet, but and I'm not the only one who's talked about this, obviously, but I have talked about on the podcast and in the blog, the fact that as much as I rail against social media, it's not because I'm against the concept of social media. <laughs> you know. And in fact, I remember way back in the ancient days when MySpace and Facebook and a few, you know, there were, there were quite a few others at the time. I remember seeing them as really helpful for just consolidating how you would communicate with people online. So you didn't have to email someone with a message and post a photo to another site and use something else to schedule an event. I saw in the, in the old days social media as a, just a consolidated place to do all of your stuff with your network, your friends and families online. That does not necessitate metrics in any way. <laughs> there's, no, there's no need for there to be metrics for you to do all of those things. And so I'm always clear, you know, I'm not anti-social media in principle or even in fact. It's that there are certain features and the metrics and the like button, you know, in particular, that have contributed to such a huge percentage of what's wrong with social media and the problems it creates individually. So anyway, thanks for mentioning that. I will check it out. I want to encourage everyone else to check out this service you mentioned that strips all of that out of social media. Yeah, they're called Demetricators by Ben Grosser. And, and what you're speaking about is, you know, a reminder to all of us that these things are designed. And those designs are a series of choices in service of certain objectives. When the objectives are broken, the choices get broken. So we've got these organizations that are now influencing millions, if not billions of minds that are still running on these basic incentives of, you know, the investor shares and profits, right? When organizations scale to this size, right, we in our society tend to promote things, we want to promote things like transparency 
and accountability. And like the way we treat our governments is we're constantly challenging them and trying to figure out like how they can be in service of us. Yet these large corporations are now beyond the influence of governments and they have none of that accountability. And your point about social media, I mean, it couldn't be more true. There's a social media called Talk Life. It looks a lot like Facebook, but instead of, you know, promoting you to just sort of share stories about your life, the entire emphasis is on self-harm and mental health issues. And you have the option to choose whether to post anonymously or with your identity. Instead of like, love, sad, your reactions are like hug and support. And the kinds of things like, I mean, if you go browse, I did this as part of my mindfulness practice at one point for, for a few weeks, I would start my mindfulness practice browsing the talk life feed and hearing, you know, I'm a little bit old for their audience. It's mostly teenagers, but I would just go and look and see these young people talking about their deepest mental health issues, including people talking about self-harm. And, and it was very challenging. Um, I was trying to sort of send them my compassion and using the tools that the social media provided to, to send them comments and send them positive reinforcement. And like another design decision in talk life is that you in your personal profile can set up triggers. So if you, you know, are likely to suffer from anxiety or depression and certain trigger words might be an influence for you, you can filter out posts by that, right? So these are, these are design decisions, right? I'm working with daily aloha right now uh, in a design capacity which is just a very lo-fi um, social media. It's low engagement, low commitment. And it just offers a positive reflective prompt once a day. Everyone on the media shares it and you can kind of browse the wall and that's it. And then like your experience is only one minute long. It does not ask you for any more experience. And it's all about positive emotions and personal reflection. So you know, let me just double down on what you're saying. Like social media as a category is not the issue. It's all the individual decisions being made on it from a design perspective, which is why design ethics is a huge part of this conversation too. Yeah. And I think it's really important for people to hear this from you as a designer and from other designers. You know, I, I come from a software development background and, you know, I know how the sausage is made so to speak. But, you know, I do think there's a lot of people out there who are using social media and other technology who, because perhaps they don't have that experience on the, the design side, who make the uh, assumption that, as you said, well, this technology just is the way it is because it has to be this way. Facebook is is social media. This is just just the way it is. They aren't aware, let's say, that there have been design choices made based on specific values or goals and that it could be done a different way. So just raising that awareness, I think, is really, really valuable. Yeah. And those organizational incentives embody into the incentives used to train the artificial intelligence and machine learning that is drawing up stories in your newsfeed, which is why we're seeing sensationalist news stories and sort of propaganda like proliferate these networks, I think. This is where the, the rubber hits the road on your, on your previous point about choreography, which is like, it can feel very disempowering to think about, well, you know, Facebook is how I connect with my family and friends. I can't quite get off it. So what am I going to do? I just have to sort of accept the status quo as it is. Whatever Robert and Jay are talking about, that's all great. I hope it changes in the future. Anyway, back to my newsfeed. But this is where I say, first of all, empowering activists like Ben Grosser, who are making these demetricators to actually alter the design, are supporting you. But there's so many choices you can make in your daily life. For example, I usually purport that the best first step would be to just completely remove any internet from your bedroom. Just like, here's a decision you can make today that will dramatically influence the ability of these technologies to manipulate you in your most vulnerable moments, which is when you just wake up and when you just go to sleep. I think one of the most unfortunate patterns of a multi-purpose tool like the, you know, iPhone. And as an aside here, I, I always think it's funny that like if you watch Star Trek, who like predicted so much of the future, the one thing they didn't predict is that we would have all of these functions on the same device. So like, you know, they had a separate tricorder for medical use and then they had a separate one for scanning ships and then they had little 
iPad type things that they were reading off of, but then Riker would sort of go in and like hand it over to Picard as opposed to like send the file. (laughs) They all had these different devices, but we have it all happening on one device. And one of the biggest problems with that is when you pull up the device to do one thing, everything else is at your fingertips. And the best example is we all use it as an alarm clock. So this direct access to all of this information and all of these patterns is lying right beside your head as you sleep. So you're looking at it as you go to sleep. And then when you wake up, the alarm goes off. So you grab it, you dismiss the alarm. And then there you are, you're looking at, you know, 16 rounded rectangles that suggest all these super easy things that you can just get sucked into in your literally most vulnerable moment. Like your eyes are still bleary. You haven't even had a glass of water yet. Right. So it's, it's unfortunate. So that's a great example of like, we don't have to wait. You practice mindfulness to train your ability to pay attention and you make intentional decisions with your uh, technology use like this one, uh, locking it out of your bedroom. And you can start to see a big change in your lifestyle. I'm going to make an embarrassing admission based on something you just said, which is that maybe you know of an answer to this, because I am now I'm thinking about looking into a way to solve this problem for myself. And then we share it with the listeners, which is not not just that you have multiple apps on the device and you can see them when you launch the home screen. So I, like many people, use the Google app for search. When you go to the Google app, at least by, by its default settings, it doesn't just show you the search bar. It shows you a news feed below hand below it. And I have found myself quite a few times going in to search for something, instead tapping on a news article and then going down the rabbit hole of reading news articles that were auto-suggested to me by Google. So uh, I, I will, after this is over, go through the settings to see if I can turn off the news feed in Google. Or maybe you know of a of a D news feeder for the Google app or someone else will go out and make one. Well, that's, you know, you're speaking about the reality we all face and it's, there are a multiple ways we can address this issue, right? Like if there's literally no option to change it, you know, that's on Google. They need to work on that, but individuals might change it, but you also have control of your phone. Like you can use a different app. You can find a way. So for example, if you type your Google search into the address bar of your browser, that works as well. So you might just remove that Google app and use that instead so that you're not being pulled away. And this is where the clarity of mind that you have to identify that this is a pattern that happens is where the mindfulness plays a role, right? Because in order to be aware that this is a pattern that keeps happening to you, you have to have that space of awareness. And so many people are doing exactly what you described without even realizing it and ending up in those rabbit holes. You know, One of the things that, that really has helped me is actually just controlling which apps are on my phone. So in, I sort of practice mindfulness. And when I notice that an app is leading to some sort of compulsive behavior, like I'm pulling out my phone all the time, that's usually a time for me to sit and reflect whether I should delete that app or add some controls or anything like that. So that's, that's kind of what you're pointing at. And I think everyone can resonate with that story, whether it's the Google app or whether it's the newsfeed uh, or ever, whatever it might be. One of the metaphors that, that I think is useful for this is it's kind of like if we agree that the attention economy is this sort of battleground where these large influential corporations are competing for your attention, Basically, when you step into the internet, you're kind of running through a war zone in some sense, right? So you kind of have to set that intention quite clearly. So if you picture like a medic who hears someone call for their word, this is an unarmed soldier who's here as a healthcare provider, you know, they are not just going to just like run aimlessly into this battleground, right? They're going to like peek over and say, okay, who said that? Where am I trying to go? They're going to look at the terrain and say, okay, I'm going to go there. I'm going to get that person. I'm going to bring them back. This is an extreme example, obviously, but in some sense, it's been instructive to say, okay, I'm looking at my phone. I'm about to turn it on because I need to go like check the weather. I'm going to go in. I'm going to check the weather. I'm going to get out. You know, like it's almost like it's reached the point that we need to set that intention. And that's where, again, you need a little bit of space and, and, and mindfulness can help train that because we, we practice setting intentions and we practice being aware of our attention and noticing when it wanders and then bringing it back. So I'm going to dive in towards that weather app. I'm going to check the weather and I'm going to notice when my attention wanders, bring it back to what I'm doing. And then I'm going to close this app down. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. You know, we do laugh at these things, but we laugh at them, but in part maybe because of how serious they are. They are. I mean, another example that comes to mind that it reminds me of, you say war zone. I, I say, uh, you know, looking both ways before you cross the street, right? It's yeah, a thing right. you do every day. It feels kind of commonplace. You cross the street, but you know, it's actually quite, it can be quite dangerous, mm-hmm. right? You do need to look both ways. Someone might be driving and not paying attention and could hit you. And we've all built right from childhood. We were taught this and practiced it over and over and over again. You know, before you cross the street, pause, look both ways and pay attention to what's happening. And we, I mean, I appreciate you pointing this out about the phone because culturally, I don't think we have yet developed that shared belief that waking up your phone carries with it a degree of risk that is comparable in any way to crossing the street or going into a war zone. And it may not be exactly the same, of course, in terms of physical risk, but we haven't developed that shared belief that it, that it uh, carries with it any of the kind of risk that would warrant even pausing in the way that, that you mentioned. Yeah, you know, it's not like you're going to pull up your phone and then accidentally end up in a situation as dire as getting hit by a car, right? And that's what makes it so hard, right? Like, if you think about it, our healthcare system in general has prioritized physical health over mental health. Mostly because mental health is really hard to understand and it's really hard to communicate. And it's also really easy to mischaracterize. I mean, if you look at the DSM, the Diagnostical Statistical Manual of Psychological Disorders, it's on the fifth version now. And every version is like dramatically different in how it classifies anxiety and depression and PTSD because we just, you know, we're still scratching the surface on understanding these things. And so, in the same way, when we you know, think about crossing the street, it's obvious, you want to make sure you're not hit by a car. But the effect of the attention economy is more of this long term, slow burn, where like a few years later, you realize you're not really going out to see your friends anymore. And you're comparing yourself to these impossible images on Instagram and, you know, advertising and and sort of the values are being exposed, make you feel like you're a failure, and you need to do more in your career. And there's just this constant feeling of emptiness that's coming out that's slowly been bled into you from the advertising you've seen, from the, the, the news feeds you're looking at, not to mention the equivalent story on like how your political views are getting more extreme, that you used to just be a little bit, you know, questioning, you know, gun control is a very time prescient topic right now because we're recording this right after these two unfortunate shootings in the US. And it's a, it's a very hot button issue. And, you know, I think the ability to have a civil discourse about gun control fades after you've spent years slowly just looking at more and more extreme stories to the point that gun control activists are just demonizing anyone who even is interested in guns and people who are in support of guns are just demonizing anyone who suggests that any sort of control on it might be warranted. And so, you know, it's it's not as easy to see it in the moment. And so we're not that great and looking both ways before we cross this street, because it's like a gradual effect. Yes, but and then here we are, right? We're, we are here after some number of years where the, the cumulative effect is really, really significant. You have talked quite a bit about how, what individuals can do uh, with mindfulness, paying attention, adopting different practices. You pointed us to some alternative technologies that are out there that people can turn to. I wonder from the point of view of a designer, which you, which you are, is there any trend now that you see in design that's heading in what you'd consider to be a positive direction or that you'd like to see design heading in to promote mindfulness or to counteract some of these worst tendencies that we've seen? Yeah. So I think my field of design, especially in the context of technology and user experience and you know apps and websites, is, is sort of having a a bit of a reckoning. We spent better part of a decade vying for, quote, a seat at the table. And a lot of that was because it was becoming clearer that good technology, like good design is the contributor, a main contributor to successful technology. But now that we have that seat at the table, we're seeing a lot of conversations start to emerge about the ethics of design. Mike Montero just wrote a really great book called Ruined by Design. And he sort of goes into Uber and Facebook and all of these, Twitter as well, all these organizations. His message is kind of like, there are individuals who are in our field, speaking about design, 
who made these decisions without a second thought. You know, James Williams in the book Stand Out of Our Light, which is all about freedom and resistance in the attention economy, he calls for kind of like a designer's oath, which is sort of like the equivalent of a Hippocratic oath, where medical students, when they, when they graduate, make an oath that they, won't, they will do no harm. And we're reaching a point where someone with my skill set has the potential to influence the minds, the mental health, and even civil discourse in dramatic ways. And so these are individuals who did not receive any ethics training, that did not really get any sense of an idea of the scale and the scope. And so in some ways, we're kind of just like kids in a sandbox that are just destroying major systems. And it's not okay. And so to me, I'm really inspired by a lot of the designers speaking about this. And I think the direction forward is to reclaim what the real purpose of design was, which is this sense of empathy and compassion for the individual who will be affected or the communities who will be affected about what we design. So when you look at a typical corporation or organization, I mean, you've got the business side who are driving for maximum profit, and you've got the marketing side who are trying to get attention, and you've got the engineering side who are trying to make things technically sustainable and and work well and functional. And to me, the design purpose needs to move far away from making things pretty or making them really seamless and frictionless and simplified. All of those things are important, but we also need to be the advocates on the leadership level. Our mission as an organization is to serve others. And we need to draw the line when manipulative tactics are being suggested and say, listen, we are not going to design that because the design function is about creating that win-win-win situation where the organization wins, the individuals who are affected wins, and as a society, our deeper values are upheld. And I think that's the future of design. And when I work on a various range, about wide range of projects, when I find really authentic leaders who are trying to make positive change in the world, they tend to live their values. It's not like they go home, practice mindfulness, and then they come to work and they're like, all right, who's ready to make some money? You know what I mean? You know, it's the same as true in the sustainability, right? There's people that are like recycling at home and being very careful about their carbon emissions are coming to work and they'll be like, how can we make the packaging more sustainable here? How can we reduce the shipping and et cetera, et cetera? So I think we need a lot more authenticity and a lot less you know, from quite frankly, greed, but to put it in more technical terms, like simple myopic incentives that only serve the organization. It makes me think, uh, so I was a student at MIT, it's back in 89 to 93, computer science and engineering. And in all of the coursework, including courses that were design projects where we worked on a team, creating a piece of software, I can't honestly think of a single time we either practiced or or were even told to think about the user. <laughs> Certainly never had any project in which we actually consulted with someone who might use what we were doing. You know, so the unstated philosophy was you have a problem and then your responsibility is to just using your knowledge of the problem and your technical skills figure out how to solve it. And that's what goes into the quote product. So let me get wonky with you here a little bit and get into the, and I'll try to make it accessible for you and all the listeners, but get into the nuance of design. So I consider myself a human centered designer. That's the sort of name of my field. And in a lot of tech companies, we refer to some of this work as user experience. And the idea is we're going to do what you're describing. We're working on this technology. We're going to interview people. We're going to get out in the field and observe them and use that to inform our design. Okay. So this was sort of the first step, which is really great and has led to a lot of wonderful technologies. But empathy is not compassion. So just the fact that we're observing people and we're looking at how they behave and understanding their lives doesn't necessarily mean that we care about them. And so the crisis that we're facing in design is empathy is often being exploited. And you can see it in the word, the word user. I mean, that's the same word that drug dealers use, right? The user is kind of suggesting that we only care about individuals as long as they're using our technology. And the goal is to have them use it more and more and more. And other than that, we don't care. But the human-centered design is saying, let's look at them holistically as a human being, look at their lives in context 
listen to their values, even if those values relate to, you know, animal welfare or sustainability. And let's try to design for the larger context of who people are. And so this is where I kind of break with some of my colleagues, because a lot of my colleagues in user experience and human-centered design are working for whatever organization and assuming, well, just because we're talking to people and we're designing for the user, we're all of a sudden in a better, you know, in a perfect ethical position. And I'm like, well, you're in a better ethical position, but why are you talking to those people? Are you talking to them so you can understand their patterns so you can better manipulate them into buying your stuff? Because if so, you are taking the absolute beauty of the human capacity for empathy and you're exploiting it for greed. And the alternative is to say, I'm going to stand up within my organization as a true representative of human-centered design and say, my job is to take what this lovely organization is trying to do, go out and speak to those people and stand up for them. Go to that boardroom table and say, actually, this will really help them. But that idea, as lucrative as it might be, we are going to make their lives harder. We are going to make their lives worse. We are going to manipulate them in a way that I don't think is ethically fair. The whole presupposition I'm talking about here is it is absolutely 100% possible to create a situation where you are serving individual human being on the other end's their actual goals and needs, and also serving your organization. And if you aren't aspiring for that beautiful harmony and balance, you better look very closely and see if you're exploiting people. And that's where design needs to go in the future, is that we need to represent that perspective within our organizations. And sometimes that puts us on the side of the individuals that we serve and in opposition to our colleagues at work. And I've been in that position and it's not easy and often people start to treat you like you're, you know, oh, there's Jay again talking about all his in- integrity ethics stuff. But I'm, I could not be more passionate that that's the role that we need to play as designers. Well, that's a great rallying cry. It's super valuable. And, you know, I, I would suspect that you would say now, as you said earlier, that all of these issues are connected, that maybe the next step after that is for, or at least it would help you. If people who are customers also take a proactive role, I I mean, I've seen some efforts at this recently in terms of, let's say, shareholder activism, but other kinds of organizing by people who aren't designers, who aren't inside companies to get together and collectively try to make their, their needs and desires and experiences known. I'm saying that out of empathy for designers who probably, you know, there's a limit (laughs) to how much you can do, uh, right, on your own inside of a company to speak up for people who might be customers. It would be, it would be nice and maybe necessary for those people to also be speaking up for themselves as well together, right? Yeah. And, and speaking up for themselves would be great, but also just taking care of yourself, right? Like there is a world where you know, it's already kind of happening in some sense, where more people are rejecting manipulative tactics. And that directly influences these organizations, right? So you can't possibly believe that Apple introduced screen time features and Google introduced digital well-being features into iPhones and Android phones out of the goodness of their heart, right? That would be like saying A&W is offering vegan burgers because they care about animals, right? They're doing it because the market is changing. And how does the market change? It changes when individuals start to change their behavior. And how do individuals start to change their behavior? Well, one way is by being manipulated by technology, but the other way is attention, activism, advocacy, education, innovation. And these things really matter. So I'd say the first step, just to be really accessible, is to take care of yourself. You know, think about how your mindfulness practice plays into your use of technology. Think about no devices at dinner or, you know, other types of rules. Like another one that I've been playing with is just I keep my phone plugged into the charger when it's at home. I never take it out of the charger. And that just prevents me from ever pulling it like in onto the couch or whatever, you know. So I think the first step is to just get that clarity. Because, you know, what I've experienced in my life is that as I've practiced more mindfulness and become more aware, my visibility of these issues has changed that I simply couldn't see what technology was doing to me when I didn't have that space for awareness. So I think, I think of it as kind of these radiating circles outward where first taking care of yourself and getting that space for your own attention and awareness. And from there, 
your authenticity starts to emerge. And whatever your current vocation or organization or initiative or passion might be, you'll find a way to bleed it in there, right? I've speak, spoken to classroom teachers who just like had that moment and decided to start teaching mindfulness in their school, you know, without telling anyone. And next thing you know, they, they're advocating to the whole school board about making mindfulness a program, right? I've talked to people who have just started teaching mindfulness or like leading, not even teaching, just like hosting a mindfulness group in their organization for their team. And then as a result, people are a little bit more aware of this stuff. And then that starts to change a little bit about how they think about their products and services. So I think it starts small, you know, this is really big lofty stuff, but I think from an accessibility perspective, just starting with those baby steps and letting it flower as you find that authentic space in your life to manifest however it manifests in your life, whether that's through your vocation or, you know, with your role as a parent or as a spouse, it can come in a lot of ways. But the more we start to see this issue for what it is and change our behavior, I believe the system-wide effects will start to grow. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that actually answers what was going to be my next question, which is what are things that people listening to this podcast can do next to start making some positive changes in their own lives? So you know, I'll ask you, where, where can people go then to find out more about you and your work and attention activism? And because it's activism to not just find out, but get involved, <laughs> get active. Yeah. So there's, there's a number of different organizations that I work with, but it, I think the, the place to start would be to go to attentionactivist.com. And that way I can kind of keep in contact with you. I have a bit of a newsletter going about this topic. It's, it's kind of cool because we can get responses. So we're getting a lot of responses from people and using that to shape. So it's becoming a bit of a dialogue. But through those emails, I mention a lot of the technologies that I've been talking about on this podcast, a lot of organizations, a lot of ideas on what you can do and reframing. And we're sort of building a community. And so I've been talking with some of the readers there about where this could go as we start to grow. And so we're thinking about how we might actually, you know, manifest this into a larger movement and building partnerships with other organizations that are, are relevant. Um, so that's a good first step. And then also, yeah, taking those actions in your life, but also thinking about how you use technology, supporting those technologies that are trying to empower individuals. And so that includes things like the Demetricators. You know, I even, you know, part of this not technology is not the problem. Like even when you think about something like video games, which tends to have this really negative reputation in circles around mindfulness. You know, I grew up playing video games. I was probably one of the first generations to do so. Video games are an art form and there are some beautiful video games out there that really embody and imbue the aesthetic and values of mindfulness and compassion. Try to sort of break through the idea that, well, every video game is people shooting I think that's just one type of video game that's going viral for the same reasons that like thinking about how you can support whatever position you're in, how you can support those organizations that are really trying to bring technology back to the human side, as opposed to the sort of aggressive capitalist exploitation side and trying to find that balance. So I think supporting individuals and organizations that are doing this cause, like the Center for Humane Technology, the Digital Wellness Collective the transformative technology community in San Francisco. We've got a mindful society community up here in Toronto. So it's really about getting involved in community. You're not going to do this alone, but there's a lot of people like myself and Robert who are on the same page and you want to sort of get together with those people and start to think about how you can support each other on your personal journey, and then how you can support organizations that are trying to make this happen as well. Yeah, thanks. It, it's very inspiring. And one of the things we try to do through the podcast, in addition to all of the practical tips, is just to let people know that there's hope. I mean, I know so many people just generally feel hopelessness or despair or resignation, maybe to the way things are. So, you know, I think just hearing from you about how many organizations are out there, the change that's already been happening to me is really inspiring. And I hope it will be to other people as well who might might have been feeling that hopelessness to know that not only are things changing, but that they can actively play a role uh, in taking part in making that change happen, whether they are a designer or not. You know, you don't have to be someone who's on the design side to play a really active role in influencing the development of technology for all the reasons that you described. And to me, the most hopeful message here is bringing it right back down to earth to say, when you sit and close your eyes or open your eyes and try to pay attention to your breath or sounds in your environment, pay attention to the present moment. 
in this modern economy, what you're actually doing is pursuing a clarity of mind that resists the forces we're talking about. So before you get all bogged into how to get involved and how do I change my career or whatever, just remember that if you right now, as you're listening to this, take a moment, let's do it together. Take a moment to take one breath. In that moment, we are reclaiming our ability to pay attention. And that is the drop in the ocean of what we're talking about. So you have an opportunity in every moment to take a step towards resisting the attention economy and reclaiming choice in your waking life. And it really does start there. And from there, it flowers out into all these conceptual, societal, mental health, and and other elements that we've been talking about. But I've definitely experienced that in my own life. This all started from a few breaths on a retreat center, (laughs) at a retreat center in the mountains somewhere, have completely transformed my trajectory as a designer and led me to resist the lucrative job opportunities to exploit people and pursue some of these deeper questions. And so it all starts with this breath. And I think that's the most hopeful message I've found in all this, that when I sit and practice, I am reclaiming something that others are trying to take from me. And the more of us who do that, the less of it is on the table for them to profit from, and the more they're forced to find new tactics. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for that reminder and for, for leading us through the experience of it as well. And, and thanks. So, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation, Jay. And thanks for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me and really, really happy to see what you're doing here. That's part of the attention activism thing too. So um, just thank you so much for your work and getting the message out. It's really important to me that we, I have a six month old baby now and then, you know, this is my first child. And so it's becoming more important than ever for the next generation that we, we make some changes in this situation. Thank you for that. And thanks again for being on the podcast, Jay. Have a good one. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us today for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, user experience samurai across mindfulness technology and design, Jay Vidyarthi. You can find out more about Jay and his work on attention activism at jayvidyarthi.com. That's J-A-Y-V-I-D-Y-A-R-T-H-I.com. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review and share the episode with your friends. And don't forget to also check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information about how to use technology more mindfully. You'll also be able to find out about our Tap Into Mindfulness course for helping you to take control over how you use your smartphone at tapintomindfulness.com. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with co-founder and CEO of Daily Aloha, Amy Giddens.